Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, and welcome to Elemental, a podcast from RNZ. I'm Alan Blackman from the Auckland University of Technology. And I'm Alison Balance, and together we are celebrating 150 years of the periodic table. This is episode 38 of Elemental, Iodine, which is something I associate with my mother putting a purple liquid on my grazed knees when I had yet another childhood tumble. Oh, yes, indeed. I think many of the listeners will be familiar with that. That's a solution of iodine and ethanol, which is often found in your medicine cabinet, and that works as an antiseptic for open wounds. And yes, it does have a distinctive lovely colour, and that's where it gets its name from. Iodine comes from the Greek iodis, meaning violet, and very, very appropriate that is. So the theme for this week, I guess, in terms of this element It's a vital trace element, and we will get to that later. But first, as we always do, we'll start with the vital statistics. Uh, Iodine, the chemical symbol I, atomic number 53, and discovered in 1811, which we will talk about in a minute. So, iodine is a non-metal, and it is a halogen, a salt producer, and that then puts it in group 17 of the periodic table, In fact, with four other elements that we have already done. Astatine, bromine, chlorine, fluorine. So really, we have finished with this group 17 because we don't count element 117, which is tennessine. That should be a halogen as well, but they've only made a few atoms of it, so we don't worry about that. What do we know about iodine? It's the heaviest stable element of the halogens, but in fact the least abundant And interestingly, it's a solid at room temperature. So if you've ever seen it, it's a beautiful, beautiful, dark purple, almost black solid, very, very lustrous. And it's solid at room temperature and pressure. Now, there's a little bit of controversy about this because some people say it sublimes directly and other people say that it melts and then boils to form a violet gas. However, my contention is if you've ever seen a sample of iodine, you look very closely above it, look very closely above the solid, you will see a purple vapour over the solid. So that means that the solid has what we call a very significant vapour pressure. And in my books, I reckon it sublimes. <laughs> I've only ever heard that called sublimate. I haven't, didn't realise that sublime was the verb as well as the adjective. That's Indeed. great. Yeah. How was it discovered? Yeah, interesting story this, like many, I guess, of the elemental discoveries. So a Frenchman by the name of Bernard Coutroy in 1811, and what he was interested in doing was to get potassium chloride out of seaweed. And the reason that he wanted to do this, because this was obviously in Napoleonic times, and so France was being blockaded by the British, And they couldn't get their supplies of saltpetre to make gunpowder. Now, saltpetre is the old name for potassium nitrate. 
And Courtois, if he could get potassium chloride, he could then turn that into potassium nitrate. So he was busy boiling up lots of seaweed ash and extracts and stuff like that. And one day he decided to add some sulfuric acid to this mixture. And what he saw was a purple vapor. And um, this was unlike anything he'd seen before. He figured out it must have been a new element. And he showed that that was, in fact, the case a couple of years later. Now, you might think he'd make a bit of a profit from discovering a new element. But sadly, um, he ended up in the pauper's home. He died penniless because Napoleon was actually defeated at Waterloo in 1815 and the blockade was lifted. So he didn't profit from iodine because he could only make very, very small amounts of it, unfortunately. Now, it's interesting, that connection with seaweed, because I do know that you get lots of it from seaweed, and I'm thinking, go sushi. (laughs) Indeed. Now, seaweeds are very unusual in that they have got the unique ability to be able to concentrate iodine from the ocean. And, uh, in fact, certain types of brown seaweed can accumulate over 30,000 times the iodine concentration of seawater, which is quite remarkable. That's very efficient. Oh, it's extraordinarily so, given the very, very small concentrations in uh, the sea itself. I guess, as everyone knows, the Japanese diet includes a lot of seaweed, and so they have some of the highest iodine intake in the world. Fish and shellfish also good sources of iodine, probably because they've been uh, munching on that seaweed. Having said that uh, the seaweeds are really, really good at concentrating iodine, plants on land can also do this as well. So they can concentrate iodine from soils. And quite ironically, iodine ends up being an essential element for humans, but not for the plants. So the place we get the iodine from is basically the plants. It's essential for us and it's non-essential for them. Well, thank you, plants, for making that iodine available for us. (laughs) Now, The Japanese might eat lots of iodine-rich food, but a lot of the world doesn't. So where does iodine for things like iodized table salt come from? Basically get it from brine in the same way as uh, we get sodium chloride and also sodium bromide. So we get industrial iodine from these brines, and generally they are associated with gas fields. So there's a big gas field, uh, the Minami Kanto gas field east of Tokyo, and the American Anadarko Basin gas field in northwest Oklahoma, and they are the two largest sources of iodine. So the brine in both of these cases is uh, hotter than 60 degrees C, so it's a pretty extreme environment there. Gosh, when I sit at the dinner table and sprinkle a little salt on my dinner, I really don't associate that with gas fields. You live and learn. (laughs) Now, I have done stories on my science program, Our Changing World, about iodine and about the history of the University of Otago. And I remember they did some groundbreaking research back in the 1920s and 1930s to work out why people got goiter. Yes, goiters, very nasty things if you've ever seen one. So iodine is in the body. It's concentrated mostly in the thyroid gland. From there, it gets incorporated into two hormones which regulate, amongst other things, the body's metabolic rate and brain development. And if we're deficient in iodine, that can lead to goiter, which you certainly don't want, and also impaired mental function, which you definitely don't want. So in 1924, New Zealand became one of the first countries in the world to add iodine uh, in the form of either potassium iodide or sodium iodide to what we call common salt, sodium chloride. And so that's where we get the name iodized salt from. And the reason that we did that was because New Zealand soils are naturally low in iodine. So this was to save the populace from becoming deficient. And so in 1924, they started adding it to salt 
and all seemed good. But then further research showed that what they were adding was too little, and they actually increased the level of iodine in the salt in 1938. And they've been doing that ever since. But now, sadly, there's a fad for so-called natural salt uh, you go down the supermarket aisle and you'll see all of these fancy salts, etc., etc., these so-called natural salts, which sadly do not contain iodine. And it may well be as a result of this that recent studies have shown that one in three New Zealand children are now low in iodine, and that's not good. But that's why, 10 years ago, I think, the New Zealand government introduced compulsory use of iodized salt in commercial bread to make sure that everyone at least got access to some iodine. Yes, good thing too. Now, having said that, while too little is bad for you, too much is bad for you as well. And because it's an essential element, we absolutely need iodine, then the radioactive form of iodine is going to be very, very dangerous. Chernobyl, for example, did release a lot of an iodine isotope, iodine-131, into the atmosphere. And ever since Chernobyl, there has unfortunately been a large increase in thyroid cancers from those who were downwind of that. So what can be done now is that if there is a nuclear accident in which radioactive iodine is released, then the populace can be dosed simply with potassium iodide tablets. What that does is, to all intents and purposes, wash the radioactive iodine out of your thyroid and out of your body. Interesting. Now what about uses of iodine that aren't associated with human health or with ill health? Well, iodine was... A very crucial element in the development of early photography. So a Frenchman, uh, Louis Daguerre, uh, who was the inventor of the daguerreotype, he used a piece of silver-plated copper to take his pictures. And what he did was to expose this to iodine vapour prior to exposing it to light. And what this then did was form a film of light-sensitive silver iodide And then obviously you expose that to light, uh, just like normal photography. So very, very important in the development of photography. Best time of the show, random fact time, Alan. (laughs) Right, so you may have heard that it's possible to seed clouds to actually get rain to fall when you want it. And that can actually be done. And the compound that they very often use is silver iodide, AGI. And I was absolutely horrified to learn that in an early experiment with this that was conducted in Britain in August 1952, there was an enormous flood in the English village of Lynmouth, absolutely inundated by floodwaters, and 34 people died. Now, 50 years after the fact, classified documents were released that showed that the RAF had been carrying out cloud seeding experiments in the vicinity. The reason for this was that if you can make it rain on the enemy, it will bog down their tanks, etc., etc. And I think that's absolutely appalling. We hope this episode of Elemental has seeded a bit of interest about the chemical element iodine and that you're not feeling too bogged down in this exploration of the periodic table. Sorry, Alan. (laughs) If you'd like to listen again or catch up with our archive of elements, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash chemistry. And of course, we're a podcast in all the usual places. We're back next time with Iridium. But until then, I'm Alan Blackman. And I'm Alison Balance. Cheerio.
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. 